0: For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Um, Thanks be to God. Thank you, God, for your word. And I pray that you would send forth your Holy Spirit to till up the soil of our hearts, that you might change us we might become more like Jesus. We ask these things in His name. Amen. Please be seated. When I was growing up, my older brother Hart, he's six years older than I am, he had this poster in his room for the perfect job. Now, I've I've looked for it online. I couldn't find it. So I've tried to recreate it the best I can from memory. Uh, Wanted, employees with no experience, willing to work three days a week. Come in at 11, leave at two with a two hour lunch break. (laughs) Benefits include new Lamborghini, 20 weeks of sick days, unlimited vacation, no responsibilities, and a starting salary of $500,000. Wouldn't that be nice? That'd be a nice kind of job. You know, and there once was a perfect job, uh, and it was given to Adam and Eve uh, to work and to keep the garden. Uh, Work was created before the fall, before sin entered into the world. And so work is good. However, this side of the fall, work sure is hard, isn't it? Uh, The work itself may be hard, but it is harder to keep a good attitude, to keep and to have a good attitude towards that work, even when it's a good job, even when we have just a fantastic job, because our heart is constantly seeking to veer off the path which God has put before us. You know, everything we do has been tainted with sin, uh, including our attitudes towards good things. So does it matter how a Christian views work? Is there a difference? Is there a difference, or should there be a difference between how a Christian operates as a boss or an employee and someone who doesn't know the Lord? See, the lordship of Christ has an impact on every area of our lives, uh, and, and there there's those certain areas where the rubber really meets the road, and that's especially true of relationships, of our marriage, of how we raise our children, how we speak, how we spend our money. And this morning, we especially look at how it impacts how we view work, how we interact with others at work, and how we serve the Lord as we serve our bosses. Uh, But before we get, this is kind of a a two-part sermon. Uh, So the first part, we have to address the fact that this text is actually not addressed to bosses and employees. It's actually addressed to masters and slaves. So we're going to talk about that first, because this is a very common critique of the New Testament that you may have heard. And so we're going to walk through how to handle that. And then the second part, we'll look at application of how this applies uh, to us, uh, 21st century believers uh, in uh, in America. Well, first, um, this is not directly or at least originally directed to employees uh, and to bosses. Uh, so how are we to in, uh, navigate this issue? Now, a lot of detractors from God's Word and a lot of scoffers will say that because the Bible does not explicitly come out and say, thou shalt not have slaves, then we know it can't be trusted. Have you, have you heard that before? It's a very common view. Um, so how do we how do we answer this? Well, the first thing we have to first acknowledge is that slavery in the first century of the Roman Empire is not analogous to, it is not the same thing as the American experience of slavery, Uh, nor was slavery in the Old Testament uh, what we know of in America as American slavery. Uh, I have read from actually the Pew Bible uh, this morning because it translates a key word, doulos, which can be translated either slave or bondservant, the ESV translation team decided to update how they translate this term. My version of the ESV says slaves. The version we read this morning says bondservants. Why why did they do that? Because uh, they were trying to make sure that English speakers, especially from America, when they read this text and others like it, they didn't immediately think of American slavery. Because those are two very different uh, institutions. As Americans, when we hear slaves, we rightfully think of slave ships, slave ships from Africa, dying—you know, people dying by the dozens, packed like sardines, having been kidnapped and then sold into the marketplace to the highest bidder uh, to do whatever they please to their slaves. This was not the condition of slaves or bond servants in first-century Roman Empire. Two totally different institutions. Let's talk about uh, what was going on there. First, slaves in the Roman Empire uh, could usually expect to be freed. It usually was not a lifelong institution. It was rare to find old slaves or old bond servants. In fact, 50% of slaves were freed or, or even bought themselves out of slavery by the age of 30. Their children were not slaves. Uh, you know, In the American version of slavery, if you had a child in slavery, that child was the property of the master. Uh, that, that is not true in first century um, Roman Empire. Second, it wasn't racially based. It was a primarily economic institution. In a society without a social safety net, people would often actually sell themselves into slavery in order to have food and security to eat. Third, slaves could actually own property, including other slaves. They could have businesses, they could save money, and they could buy themselves out of slavery. Fourth, slaves often assumed the social standing of their masters. If you saw a slave and his master, it was hard to tell which one was which by their clothes. And one of the quickest ways to obtain Roman citizenship was actually to sell yourself to a Roman citizen. Okay, so while those things are true, let's not pretend like this was all uh, a bed of roses. It most certainly was not. There were great abuses in the first century. Um, so how can the Bible, which is perfect, without error, penned by God, the inspired word of the Lord, have such commands to slaves and masters? How in the world does Paul not just come out and say, masters, free your slaves? Well, we have to put ourselves in the context of the Colossian church and the context of the first century church. They lived in an age, I don't, are you ready for this, how many slaves there were in the Roman Empire? Roughly around 60 million 60 million slaves. That's not over the lifetime of the Roman Empire. That was at one time. And that's about a fourth to a third, depending on who you read, of the entire Roman population. So Paul is writing to uh, first-generation believers who find themselves already in this institution. It would kind of like be uh, writing to people who lived in communist Russia during the 1960s. What do you say to a believer who is in that system? You, you tell them what it looks like to endure and to be the, the best witness for the Lord in the middle of it. Um, you know, there would have been many slaves, many bond servants sitting in the pews in the Colossian church. We actually know of one, his name was Philemon, who owned Onesimus. Uh, Paul actually writes a letter just to this man about this brother in Christ. What were they to do? How were they to act? What did it look like to carry out their newfound faith in Christ in their roles as bondservants? What about those who had bondservants? Were they supposed to act just like the unsaved Gentiles towards their bondservants? No, absolutely not. We actually see that what Paul says here would have been outrageous in his culture. The fact that he would tell uh, masters to treat their bondservants well and he goes even further in Ephesians chapter 6, the, the, uh, the, the analog passage to this one, very similar. Uh, he goes on to say, Hey, you better treat him right. Stop threatening. You, you can't keep acting like this. Uh, so so he, he brings to bear the word of God, both to the bondservant and to the master alike. He undercuts, by the way, any defense of the American version of slavery, period. There is no, absolutely none, bar none, zilch nada. There is no biblical defense for the American version of slavery, period. Period. And scripture's really clear on this. And let me let me tell you the places. Uh, Ezekiel, excuse me, Exodus 20, 21, verse 16, uh, undercuts the entire basis of the American version of slavery, and that is forced enslavement and kidnapping. Whoever steals a man and sells him, so you have the one who steals and sells, kidnapping to sell, and, you ready for this? Anyone found in possession of him, the buyer, the seller, and the one who possesses, shall be put to death. That's what God thinks of the American version of slavery. And the American church, especially the southern church, failed failed in this, period. Exodus 21 goes on to forbid the use of violence or force. Paul actually tells bond servants over in 1 Corinthians 7, 21, but if you gain your freedom, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. He tells Philemon, the owner of Anisimus, to treat him like a brother instead of as a slave. He tells masters in this text, or excuse me, in the Ephesian text, to stop using threats. And he's going to say, before God, there is neither slave nor free. All are equal before the Lord. So, when you hear the criticism that the Bible supports American slavery, you can say, no, that's not true. That's not true. It was certainly misused by many to add a veneer, but it was never true. All right, so how do we apply this to our context? How do we apply this to our context? Actually, pretty readily. As we think about the structures of authority and the structures of, uh, of who's in charge and what we're to do, there is a one-to-one analog, a one-to-one correlation between how we are to view our jobs. And so first we're gonna talk about employees. How are we as employees meant to engage as believing Christians in the workplace. The first and overriding point of this passage is no matter what field you're in, if you work for the state, the sawmill, paper mill, working on freight cars for the state, for the school, cleaning houses, installing HVAC at the hospital, for a private company, as a lawyer, as a doctor, and the elements are at your desk, even as a student, our boss is Jesus. That's the overriding point of this passage. Your boss is Jesus. Let me tell you where this is found in this text. 22, fearing the Lord. 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. 24, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. 24 as well, you are serving the Lord Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 4, you have a master in heaven. Verse 24, we have a warning that there's accountability, not just for bosses but also for employees uh, all before Jesus. Ephesians 6, 7 says, Rendering servants with a good will as to the Lord and not to men. There may be uh, someone with flesh that has uh, authority over you, but ultimately your big boss is Jesus. And by the way, this allows us and helps us to work in jobs that we don't like. Have you ever had one of those jobs? I like my job. Have you ever had one of those jobs? I know I have. Uh, I, I worked at a, um, as a, uh, a barista at a coffee shop in, in Tuscaloosa. And over a four to five hour stretch, we would have two customers come in. <laughs> that was awful. And I wasn't allowed to study and I had to clean the rest of the time. So that place was spotless. But do you know, you know who owned my job? It wasn't me. It was my boss, Brian. And ultimately, I wasn't serving him though I rarely had this mentality, I was serving Jesus. See, bond, Paul reminds bondservants, and certainly us, that we need to change our perspective. Because if we let it, when we have a bad boss, or life is hard, or we don't like the job we're doing, or some element of the job, it can rob us of joy, can't it? And then we'll, instead of leaving work at home, we bring it home, excuse me, instead of leaving work at work, we'll bring it home and destroy the joy not only of ourselves, but all those around us too. Jesus is our boss, and we can trust him when life is hard with the results of that which he calls us to. We're gonna sing at the end of the service, um, uh, Living for Jesus. Uh, let Let me just tell you what it says Living for Jesus a life that is true. Striving to please Him, not your boss. It's, it's good to please your boss, right? But ultimately, striving to please Him in all that I do. Yielding allegiance, glad-hearted and free. That is the pathway, a blessing for me. You know, one of the elements, one of the applications for being a Christian employee is that we're just good employees. Do you know what kind of bond servants receive the highest bid in the slave markets of first century Rome? Christians. Christians were the most expensive slaves. Why? Because of their work ethic and their respect. And they understood they were serving ultimately the Lord. We're we're told here to obey in everything. Obey in everything. There are a lot of really clear applications here. Uh, We talked as a youth group this morning uh, at Sunday School that that means that when your boss tells you to do that thing you don't want to do, guess what? You get to do it. That's not just get to, you have to. That's the clear example, the clear application. But I think the more difficult application is one of our hearts. One of our hearts. Because God wants not just our obedience, He wants our hearts as well. We talked last week about children and parent that, uh, that when a child uh, cleans his room but is huffing and puffing and complaining the whole time, is that really obedience? Well, yes and no. It's yes, the task is being done, but their heart is in full rebellion against their parents. And how often do we do that at work as well? How we talk about our bosses, uh, how we talk, not not just to them. A lot of times we'll be very compliant with with our employers. But then when you get into the water cooler room, all you want to talk about is how awful your boss is. Um, you know, uh, a couple weeks ago I was sitting in Walmart, I think I mentioned this last week, and uh, I was in Walmart in the self-checkout line, and there were these two employees, and they were just bad-mouthing their boss. I was saying, this guy just must be really bad. <laughs> and, and here I was, just a, someone that's you know, at Walmart. What do the people around you think about what you think about your boss? Um, you know, Ultimately, we have received grace and mercy from our big boss, Jesus. You know, and he calls us to show grace and mercy to our bosses when they fail us. Your boss will fail you. I'm sure you know that very well. And you might be able to document all the times he has. Your boss will fail you. And just as we have received grace and mercy from our boss, our big boss, Jesus, we're called to show grace and mercy to our bosses when they fail us. Because here's the thing. We probably want their grace and mercy when we mess up, don't we? And they are far more likely to show it to us if we're ready to show it to them. You know, the Christian work ethic is important too. They're, they're, um, this is both put negatively and positively in our text. Uh, negatively, we are told to work not just by way of eye service, and also not to work as just people pleasers. Um, you know, uh, what, what's he getting at? Eye service is what we do only when the work, when, only when the boss is, is looking. You know, when the cat is away, the, the mice work diligently and do everything. They're, no, that's not how it works. Uh, When the When the cat is away, the mice play. You know, and, and so we are called to be uh, disciplined, not just when the boss is looking, but also when he's not looking. But the, the second one of not just being people pleasers, we were talking as a youth group, you know, if, if your boss tells you to weed eat two fields and you know that he's only going to check one of them, you're probably going to do the one that he checks better than the other one, won't you? At least you'll have that temptation. You might do the other one, but it might be a little sloppy. While the other one's going to be nicely edged, you know, and it's all going to be uniform, it's going to be perfect. Might even get the blower out and make it look good. But the other one, not so much. Why? That's the idea of of serving just as people-pleasers just so that we'll get the appreciation of our boss no matter if our work was good or not. Positively, on the other side, we're told to work with sincerity and work heartily and work fearing the Lord. You'll remember that for several weeks we were talking through the idea that in Christ we are not who we once were. We're new creations, and now we are called to live like the people whom we've been declared to be in Christ. And that includes the workplace. That includes the workplace. Is there a difference in your workplace, in my workplace, or in your classrooms, in MPE, and on the ball field? Is there a difference between your attitude and the attitude of those who don't know Jesus? See, this points us to Jesus, doesn't it? You know, this this word bondservant or slave in Greek is doulos, and it's the same word that is applied to Jesus, to what He did for us in Philippians 2, 7 through 8. He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, of a doulos, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why did Jesus take the form of a servant? so that He might pay for our sins, that, that we who are dead might be made alive. And now our regenerate hearts, by the Holy Spirit, we are able to bring the fear of the Lord into the workplace. That doesn't mean we're coming with a stick and telling everybody about Jesus, repent or die. right? You need to tell your, about your, your friends about Christ. You need to tell your co-workers about Jesus. But when we talk about bringing the fear of the Lord into the workplace, that means that we are bringing our relationship with Jesus there. We don't check our relationship with Jesus at the door when we go to our workplace. The policies at your workplace may tell you to do that, but you cannot. We are not part-time Christians. We are full-time believers. Um, Our status as children of God, adopted sons and daughters, freed by the bondage to sin, having found significance in Christ and yearning for the second coming of the King, these things completely change how we see our work. Now we are called to work with sincerity and integrity even when the boss isn't looking, working heartily unto the Lord and praying for the salvation of those uh, with whom we work. Did you know that God has strategically placed you in your workplace around people who don't know Jesus? The greatest exposure of many of your fellow co-workers, the greatest exposure they have to, to a Christian may be you. They may live with an unbeliever. They may may work with other unbelievers. They may play with other unbelievers at the ball field. But they work with you. And and whether we like it or not, they are watching us to see how we react when the boss isn't there. Or or what is said at the water cooler. or, Or when we're told to do something that we don't want. Will you join in? Will you speak highly? You know, at the end of the day, it is the employee's job to make his boss look good. And that's a foreign concept to us, isn't it? The job belongs to the boss, and our job is to make the boss look good. Well, there is a payday coming. Verses 24 to 25 tells us, "'Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward.'" You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back. For the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Think about this. Put yourself in the shoes of a first century slave. Not exactly a good place to be. Not exactly a good place to be. And all of a sudden you hear about an inheritance. Slaves didn't inherit anything. When the master died, uh, in fact, the slaves were inherited to the next, uh, next, next line of kin. But now we read that they have an inheritance to look forward to that is far greater than whatever financial recompense that the, the sons and daughters of their masters would have received. See, they, they, they are now co-heirs of Christ, united to Him, the recipients of God's grace, and they can look forward to the day not only of their emancipation, but the coming into the greatest treasure ever, ever in the history of the world. Eternal salvation in heaven. They had within, within them and within us the down payment of the Holy Spirit. That deposit, the guarantee, the earnest money in the banks of our regenerate hearts. And we will come into our full blessing, our full inheritance when Christ comes again. And this promise is for all those now as well no matter how good life circumstances are, no how bad they are, that there's strength and comfort to be found in God, and there's a coming a day when the wrongdoing's done to Christians in the workplace. And I know that many of you have been victims of being just being persecuted, of you're a believer, and therefore you didn't get that promotion, or your boss doesn't like you, or seeks to subvert you, or tries to get you out the door. I know those things happen. But there will be one day... When all those things will be repaid, and you'll be openly vindicated before all creation as a son or daughter of the King. So, how do we summarize um, Paul's word to employees? We work for Jesus. And therefore, Jesus needs to be the one who controls our attitudes, our actions, and our work ethics as we walk daily with Him. Well, quickly, let's look at uh, God's word to bosses in verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You know, the overarching thing that Paul communicates to masters and employers is that they will have to answer to the Lord their God for how they act as bosses and employers. And God does not play favorites. There might be favorites, there might be favoritism, there might be partisan politics within your workplace. God doesn't play those games. Uh, The patronage of politics, the good old boy system, none of those things will matter on the day of judgment. The only thing that will matter is are you covered in the blood of Jesus? And will he be able to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, for you have served me well as you have uh, led others as an employer. You know, God hears the pleas of the poor and drowntrodden, and throughout Scripture He speaks boldly against all those who oppress those who have no influence or voice in society. You know, just as being an employee and being a believer transforms what it means to be an employee, being a boss, or maybe you're not even the big boss. Maybe you're just middle-of-the-road supervision. Maybe you have someone above you, lots of folks above you, and just a few folks under you. God calls you to a much higher calling than He does just to employees. Because you are not just to serve your boss, you are also to serve your employees. Think think about what Jesus did. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. And this is God. Do you remember in John 13? What did He do? He, He fulfilled the role of a slave when He took up the towel And he washed the feet of his disciples. That's the call of the Christian employer. Not to say that there's no place for authority structures. and and There there, there are times for firing and termination. Those things are true. That, That does not remove it. This is not some socialistic kind of communist view of work. That's not what this is at all. But employers are called to be deeply invested in the good and the welfare of their employees. Listen to what one commentator said. Employers, if you truly realize that you must answer to God for the way you conduct yourselves with your employees, you will care about what happens to them. You'll be concerned that they are paid properly. You'll be concerned about their illnesses, their spouses, their children, and their education. Well... How do we conclude? Well, God has called us all to be uh, employees and or bosses. Right? Perhaps that period of your life is over, uh, but I think you can probably apply these in other areas as well. God calls our walk with Him to transform every area of life. Our Savior came to do work as well. Have you ever thought about that? The work that God came to do when He took on flesh, became man. Theologians call it His cross work. He came and He died for people like you and me, who mess up all the time, who mess up all the time and sin as bosses and employees. He took the penalty on the cross for our failures and for our transgressions. And He has done all the work. He's done all the work. There's no work left to be done for our salvation. We don't earn it. We don't perform it. He did it for us that we might receive eternal life if we put our faith in Him. So let me end by quoting the refrain of the hymn that we're about to to conclude with. O Jesus, Lord and Savior, I give myself to Thee, for Thou in Thy atonement didst give Thyself for me. I own no other master. My heart shall be thy throne. My life I give henceforth to live. O Christ, for thee alone. Let's pray. Father, when we have been given responsibility, help us to serve you well. When we are accountable to others and their authority, help us to serve you well. Father, I pray that you would help our attitudes and our work ethic. Uh, Father, to point people Uh, to our lovely Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.